So in 2019, I am calling for us at Iron City Baptist Church to begin a campaign, a pursuit, an unapologetic, unstoppable, relentless pursuit of our own joy. Now, that means that we are also, at the very same time, as we pursue joy, choosing to reject all of the other shortcuts and all of the other sources of joy that we find in our lives. That we are choosing to reject the reflex that many of us have not to pursue our joy, but to simply numb ourselves with pornography and nor, nor, numb ourselves with alcohol and with drugs and numb ourselves with Netflix. Now, for many of us, we've been conditioned so that the pursuit of our joy doesn't seem noble to us. We've been conditioned so that the pursuit of joy seems as though it is something less than Christian, something less than honorable, something less than virtuous. So perhaps you hear me saying that I'm calling for the pursuit of joy this morning and you, you, you respond and your, your reflex is should we not have something more noble? Should we not pursue something that is greater, something that is more honorable, something that is self-effacing? Should we not begin to pursue holiness rather than happiness, you might think? Should we not pursue God's pleasure rather than our own pleasure? What we began to see last week is that if we pursue our pleasure in God, then we have no decision to make. We don't have to choose between God's pleasure and our pleasure if we will pursue our pleasure in God's pleasure. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, as I call us to pursue to this pursuit of joy, I'm calling us to find all of our pleasure, all of our joy, all of our contentment, all of our exhilaration in the pleasure of God Himself. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now to John chapter 15? John chapter 15. Once you get there, would you stand with me as we prepare to read God's Word? together. John chapter 15, we'll read the first 11 verses together. God's inerrant and all-sufficient word says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that, is, that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. 
As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. May God bless the reading and the preaching of His Word this morning. You may be seated. Any question that we have about the virtue of joy's pursuit is answered and obliterated when we read verse 11. Read read verse 11 again with me. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So Jesus sets before us this morning, giving us this powerful teaching in John 15, and he says that the end game, that the the target that he has in mind, the bullseye that he is targeting, is that our joy may be full. And if Jesus says this is the target of his speaking and the target of his teaching in John 15, then what we can say is that at the very least, this is virtuous and good. In fact, in John chapter 17, Jesus, just before he goes to the cross, prays the high priestly prayer. And as Jesus begins to pray for his disciples and pray for the days ahead and to pray for what they will face, this is what he says his motivation is. That they might have joy fulfilled in themselves. That Jesus, as he prays one final prayer over his disciples and to the end of his disciples, he says that the motive, my Father, is to pray that my disciples might not just have joy, but to have a joy that is full and ultimate and total. And so impacted John. That when John begins to write his letters to his churches, he begins the epistle of 1 John by saying, I write these things to you that your joy might be full. And in his second epistle, he ends it by saying, I hope that I get to come to you so that your joy might be full. That John took the aim of Jesus and the motivation of Jesus and made it his aim in ministry and his motivation in ministry to pursue the joy of the flocks that he oversaw. And so what we begin to see is that joy is not unvirtuous, and joy is not self-centered. In fact, joy is the natural pursuit of every man and the natural pursuit of every woman. It is what every teenager is looking for and what every child wakes up wanting. Joy is our most natural instinct and desire. So the, the, the issue is not with joy itself. The issue is with the ends, that, the, the means that we use to get to the end. That the end in and of itself, our joy, our happiness, the pursuit of that joy is honorable and good and even Christ-giving and Christ-centered. So it's not the ends that's the problem, it's the means to the end that we pursue. You see, what we do is we look for shortcuts to joy, don't we? We look for shortcuts to joy. We look for for ends around all of the hearts. We look for for ways that we can find joy, find joy in the world, find joy in our circumstances, find joy in our lives that are different than the joy that Christ teaches. We define our joy by 
achieving and buying and winning by obtaining and raising our standard and giving our kids more than we had. We find joy when, when other, we pursue joy in thinking that other people see us and define us as successful. Or maybe it's so that we can look in the mirror and define ourselves as successful. And what happens inevitably as we take shortcuts to joy is we find out that all of these shortcuts fail. It usually happens one of two ways. For some, it happens because they achieve, and they win, and they succeed, and they obtain, and they buy, and they build up a life that is, by every intent and purpose, amazing and remarkable. And everybody craves what they have and wants who they are. But they look in the mirror with the family that they always wanted, the spouse they always wanted, and the job they always wanted, and the car, and the house, and the ambitions, and the achievements that they always wanted. And they look in the mirror and they feel something less than joy. And they realize that all of it measured up short. All of it failed. All of it, as Solomon said, was the chasing after the wind. Vanity. For others, they try and they work and they claw and they scratch and they fight and they save and they do and everything that they do just keeps on turning up short. Their job doesn't turn out the way they thought it should and their family and their marriage doesn't turn out the way that they thought it should and their kids don't turn out the way that they think they should. They thought that they were headed to a life of achievement and instead they're headed to a life of disappointment after disappointment after disappointment until ultimately they throw up their hands and they say, I quit. I quit trying. It doesn't matter what I do. I am destined to misery and despair. This is why suicide rates among the rich are no different than suicide rates among the poor. Whatever shortcut we attempt to find for joy, whatever pursuit we tend to make, we end up coming up short because what we have done in taking our shortcuts is we have short-circuited our own joy, our own happiness, our own purpose. The end is honorable and the end is virtuous and the end is good. But the means, the means are where we fail. The means are where we come up short. And so what we see in our passage is that there, are, there is one mean to two different ends, two glorious ends, two Christ-honoring ends. Jesus gives us this in verse 8. He says the, the first end of abiding in me, the first aim, the first end game is by this, my Father is glorified. So to put this in the language of what we talked about last week, it is that God the Father would be pleased in me, that, that God would take pleasure in my life, that God himself would find happiness and joy in my life, that I would, would lift up his own spirit and that he would be pleased. Not that God needs us to be happy, you understand. God is happy. But that God would look down upon us and take particular joy in us particular pleasure in us, be glorified by us, that His goodness, His kindness, His holiness, His wonder would be trumpeted in this creation by the way that we are living if we do this. 
The second end he gives is in verse 11, when he says that your joy may be full. And so again, brothers and sisters, do you see the connection that what Christ is proposing is that we, if we submit ourselves to his means, that again, God will take pleasure in us and we can take pleasure in God. That there is a relationship for us by finding our joy in God. God finds joy and glory and honor in us. There's a relationship here. And so Jesus says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. These, I, this is the, the final of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. And if you remember back to the Old Testament, if you've read your Old Testament, this should be bringing thoughts into your mind because that's what Jesus was intending. It takes us back to Exodus chapter 3, doesn't it? In Exodus chapter 3, you have, you have Moses, and he's out, and he's kind of doing his thing, living a life in exile, out in the wilderness, and all of a sudden there's a burning bush, and the burning bush is talking. And when burning bushes talk, you listen. You listen. And so the burning bush begins to talk, and he's commissioning Moses to go and to deliver the people of Israel from Pharaoh and from Egypt, so that they could begin to pursue the purpose for which God had intended from them from the beginning. And Moses is like, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure? Like, I don't speak well. I'm, I'm kind of a, uh, you know, not widely accepted in Egypt. I was raised by Egyptians, so I'm not really accepted by my own people too. And like, when I go to them, why on earth are they going to listen to me? Like, who do I even tell them? Do I tell them that a bush told me to come? And what does... God say, tell them that I am sent you. Tell them that I am sent you. You ask my name, I am who I am. So here in John, Jesus begins to declare and he begins to say, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. This is not simply a description of his identity. This is a proclamation that Jesus is the man who is God. Putting himself on the even plane with the one from Exodus 3. And vines were common in uh, Jesus' day, but it is not mere happenstance that Jesus is using a vine, a vineyard, as a metaphor here. No, Jesus is using a vine because a vine provokes in their thoughts images of the old covenant, images of the old Israel. In Isaiah chapter 5, it says that God planted a vineyard when he elected Israel. That God planted a vineyard and the purpose of the vine in the vineyard was to bear the fruit of God so that the nations would see the power of the God of Israel and the wonder of the God of Israel. And they would know that instead of all of their pagan gods and all of their false gods, they would know that I am who I am is greater than them all. That they are all subservient to the true God, the God of Israel. And he says that Israel fails. 
The vine that was to bear the fruit of God. The vine that was to bear the fruit of obedience. The vine that was to bear the fruit of holiness. The vine that was to bear the fruit of consecration. Instead, he says it bears wild grapes. It bears a fruit that does not resemble God. It bears a fruit that does not honor God. And instead of bringing the nations to God, they prostitute themselves out to the pagan gods of the other nations. And so in Psalm 80... The psalmist prays, and the psalmist sings, Oh God, oh God, would you restore the vine? Would you restore the vine by the Son of Man? And so the emphasis here is not just on Jesus being a vine, but on Jesus being the true vine. You see, Israel was the vine of God in the Old Covenant. But Israel could not be faithful. Israel was not faithful. And Israel instead shamed God rather than glorifying God. But in the New Covenant, in the Christ that has come, Jesus is the new Israel. He is the fulfillment of Israel. He is obedient where they were disobedient. He is faithful where they were unfaithful. He is holy where they were unholy. He is devoted with His full allegiance to the Father where they found their affections divided. The vineyard of the Old Covenant has been replaced by the vineyard of the New Covenant. Jesus is now the true vine and He will bear the fruit that Israel could not bear. But not only does He say that, He clarifies in verse 5, not just who Christ is in verse 1, but who we are in verse 5, right? So in, in verse 1 He says, I am the true vine. And in verse 5 He says... I am the vine, you are the branches. I am the vine, and you are the branches. So he's bringing into our minds now the role of the people of God. In the old covenant, the people of God were the vine. Israel was the vine itself, meaning they were responsible for mustering up their own obedience. They were responsible for creating the fruit of God. They were responsible for obeying the law, but not in the new covenant. Not in Christ. Because the disciples, they are the branches that have been grafted into the vine. They are the branches that have been supernaturally born again into the vine. They were born originally separated from the vine, dead, lifeless, powerless. But now God has grafted them in by, born, by them being born again of the vine. So in the Old Covenant, Israel had to bear their own fruit, create their own fruit. But in the New Covenant, the church, the disciples of Christ are branches of the true vine. And it is His nourishment and His strength and His goodness and His glory and His holiness and His righteousness bearing fruit through the branches. See, it doesn't come from within them. It doesn't come from their minds. It doesn't come from their abilities. It comes from Christ. It comes from Christ. That's the purpose of a vine, isn't it? Isn't that the relationship between branches and vines? Branches have no ability. Branches have no meaning apart from the vine. The vine assigns purpose to the branch. And the vine not only assigns purpose to the branch, but the vine gives everything that the, that the branch needs so that the branch can then fulfill its purpose. The purpose of the branch? 
to bear fruit. How does the branch bear fruit? It takes all the divine gives it. All the divine brings to the table. And it simply manifests what the vine gives. And when it comes to vines and branches, you, it's hard to tell where one ends and one begins, isn't it? That the branch is so intimately connected, so intimately attached, so that the, the branch is abiding in the vine. It is remaining, dwelling, residing in the, vein, in the vine. And it is so intimately attached that you can't see where one ends and one begins because the, branch, the vine is connected to the, to the branch and giving life to the branch and giving strength to the branch so that the branch can bear the fruit. So it gives the, mean, the purpose of bearing fruit and it gives the ability in allowing the fruit come to bear. And so what Jesus is saying is that this is a picture of how the church is to abide in Christ. That we don't have to muster up strength and muster up brilliance and muster up contentment and muster up joy. We abide in Christ. We reside in Christ. We draw near to Christ. We are so intimately connected to Christ that you can't see where Christ ends and we begin where we begin and Christ ends. No, we are now one, one plant, one creature now with Christ, born again, made new. So that Christ's fruit comes to bear in our life. Christ's righteousness radiates from us. Christ's holiness radiates from us. Christ's joy dwells in us because we dwell in Christ. And that's why he says what he says in verse 5. Read verse 5 with me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I think that's Jesus' main point here. That if you try to do this under your own strength, if you aim at joy and you aim at peace and you aim at kindness and you aim at goodness apart from Christ, you're working against your very design. You're working against the way God engineered you. You're working against your purpose. You're not fulfilling your purpose. And so you take shortcuts at joy. You take shortcuts at happiness. You take shortcuts to peace and shortcuts to contentment. And you say, if I can just achieve a little more, if I can just be a little bit smarter, if I can just make a little higher grade, then I can muster up joy and I can muster up contentment and I can, I can muster up. And, and this is what the world tells you, isn't it? Just look within. Dig a little bit deeper within. You've got it within you. You're a winner inside of you. You're good inside of you. So just, just tap into that inner winner. Tap, tap into that inner good. Tap into that inner joy. And then everything is going to be good. The world is telling you, keep mustering up the strength that you have so that you can bear the fruit that only Christ can give. What happens is, is we're left dry and dead. Because we are detached from the vine. We wither up. You can't behave good enough. You realize that? You can't obey good enough. You can't do enough. You can't 
attain enough. You can't achieve enough. You can't make yourself righteous. You can't make yourself good. You can't make yourself holy. You can't make yourself acceptable in the eyes of God. That is the fruit of Christ. And apart from Him, detached from Him, trying to do that by your own strength and by your own fortitude and by your own determination, you will dry up, you will wither, you will die. Is there any wonder why there is so much hopelessness and despair in our world? What is the thing that everybody is looking for? Purpose, meaning, and significance. Because it's purpose, meaning, and significance that bring joy. Right? It's purpose, meaning, and significance that bring contentment. It's purpose, meaning, and significance that, that bring, bring peace that is without understanding in life. Right? This is why when Rick Warren writes a book called The Purpose Driven Life, it sells like a billion copies. Because people want purpose. The purpose of the branch is to abide in the vine. The purpose of the branch is to bear the fruit of the vine. The purpose of the disciple of Christ is to dwell with Christ and know Christ and love Christ and enjoy Christ and grow in Christ. And as we delight in Christ and enjoy Christ and please ourselves on Christ, the joy of Christ and the fruit of Christ comes to bear in our lives. Everything else is chasing after the wind. Everything else is vanity. That's why there's a contrasting verse for verse 5. Verse 5 says, apart from me you can do nothing. Apart from me you have no power. Apart from me you have no righteousness. Apart from me you have no goodness. Apart from me you have no joy. You have no contentment. You have no happiness. You have no purpose. But then there's verse 7. Then there's verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Verse 5, apart from me you are powerless. Verse 7, abiding in me and my words in you, and you are unstoppable. Verse 5, muster up all that you want. Muster up strength, and muster up goodness, and muster up holiness but you will never get it. Verse 7, ask for anything that you wish and whatever you wish will be yours. Do you see the contrast? Do you see the difference? One, you work hard and you run hard and you chase after it and you never get there. The other, you live and abide and rest and remain and all of it becomes yours. How? How is it that we can muster up so much and yet keep striking out and then we can just, we can just rest and remain and abide and then have? It's because, you see, the vine is the supplier of the branches. The vine is the supplier of the branches. It doesn't matter how hard a branch wants it. It doesn't matter how hard a branch works. If the branch is detached from the vine, the branch will dry up. This is what Ezekiel tells us about the vine of Israel. This is Jesus' point when he says, those who are detached, they will be taken away and burned. What other good is a branch 
from a vine than for firewood. But if you abide, if the branch is attached to the vine and the vine is supplying all the nutrients and the vine is supplying all the strength and the vine is supplying all the water and the vine is supplying everything that the branch needs, all the branch has to do is just bear the fruit. The fruit comes naturally. The, fl- the fruit is the overflow of the vine. And this brings us back to the issue of joy. See, to have joy requires you receiving whatever what you most want. We, we can try to make it sound more flowery than that. We can try to make it sound more self-effacing than that, more honorable than that. But the truth is, is you know that the way that you find joy and the way that you find happiness is getting that that you wish to have. And so Jesus says that if you abide in me, you will get whatever you wish. Like, whoa, what in the world is that? Are we going to prosperity gospel here? Like, I want a Lamborghini, right? Like, that's what I need. And the true thing is that the more things, and you know this in your life, the more things that you need to have joy, the less joy that you actually have in your life. The more that you require to be happy, the more that you require to be content, the less contentment, the less happiness, the less peace you actually have in your life. The happiest people are typically the simplest people. They don't require much. They may have much, but they don't require much. They may have little, and they don't require much. They can just be content. They can be peaceful. They can be, they can be happy. So how can Jesus promise that if we abide in Him, we will get what we wish? Is Jesus saying that He is some eternal genie in a, in a lamp? Not at all. Not at all. What Jesus is saying is that abiding in Christ transforms what we need in order to be happy. Abiding in Christ takes what we most want and the ideals that we hold for our life and the desires that we have and the wants that we have and the wishes that we have and it begins to conform them to the desires and the wants and the wishes and the will that God has for us. And when you want what God wants, when you desire what God desires, when you wish for what God wishes for, and you bring that together, brothers and sisters, it is unstoppable. Because no one can thwart the will of God. And no one can thwart the purposes of God. So when your desire and your heart and your wishes become in alignment with the will of God, and that is your passion, is His passion, Ask for whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart, because the desires of your heart are His heart. They are now in sync with one another. And do you know what happens when you begin to get what you want, because what you want is what God wants? Joy, and peace, and contentment. The fruit of the Spirit, those things that you can't buy and those things that you can't find and those things that you can't build up in yourself with a workout plan, the fruit of the Spirit begins to manifest itself in your life because you are a branch abiding in the vine. You become the same. This is why Paul so often throughout his epistles talks about being in Christ. 
being in Christ. Because I am in Christ, I am abiding with Christ, I am remaining in Christ, and Christ's nature becomes my nature, and Christ's desires become my desires, and I begin to bear the fruit of Christ in my life. He says that not only is he the true vine, but the Father is the vine dresser. Now, that's just a farmer, okay? We don't use vine dresser very often here in uh, Iron City, Alabama. That's, that's talking about a farmer. The father is the farmer. And he says the, the father, as the farmer, has two primary purposes. The first purpose that the father has is to find the dead branches. The dead branches that Paul, that, that Jesus is talking about here, that, those are those that, that are like the, the, the parable of the sower, the seed that, that goes down on, on rocky soil, and it, and, it, and it looks like it's going to do well, and it springs up for just a second, but it withers and dies just as quickly. Those who profess faith in Christ. Those who say they love Christ. Those who say they are passionate about the kingdom of God and submitted to the kingdom of God and pursuing the kingdom of God. And yet, in their actual lives, there is no fruit. In their actual lives, there is no obedience. In their actual lives, there is no manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of Christ is not in them. They give every indication that they are merely a branch detached from the vine. And so the Father's responsibility, the Father's purpose is to remove those dead, withered branches away from the vine so that the vine has more room for the fruit. The second responsibility that the farmer has is that he would prune those that are bearing fruit. That he would prune those that are bearing fruit. By pruning them, he will gather he, they, he will create, cause them to begin producing even more fruit. Now, you know, we have a vineyard just right over here by the church, right? And I don't know how many of y'all drive by the vineyard uh, on, a, on a regular basis, maybe on your way to church, but I do. And one of the things that, that is striking to me is the vines, they grow, they begin to spread out leaves, they produce the fruit, and it seems like no sooner do they grow, uh, put out leaves, produce fruit, that they're gone. The, the, the farmer comes in, the vine dresser comes in, and he cuts those, same, those things so viciously, he prunes them so severely that to me, to my naked eyes, they look dead. In fact, uh, a few months ago, we were driving, and Megan said, did they all die? Did they all die? I said, I don't think so. I think they know what they're doing. But, but it, you, you look at them, and from the outside looking in, it seems that they've been cut so severely that their vines are going to die. But by cutting them back, the farmer is, pre is preparing them for new fruit. Sweeter fruit, greater fruit, more fruit. And over the years, the vines, they just grow and they produce and they produce year after year, season after season. See, pruning at first glance seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? Pruning at first glance just seems to be painful and destructive. But in retrospect, pruning is beautiful. And pruning is radiant. I told you before that I'm an amateur landscaper, right? Now, if you come by my current crib, it is not ready, all right? So give me, give me the end of the summer. But you know, like, I've had these crepe myrtles. I don't know how many of you guys have experience in pruning crepe myrtles, but I've got some experience, all right? I, I, I YouTubed it, all right? You can learn anything on YouTube, even how to prune crepe myrtles. 
And you, you take these things after they've had this the most beautiful blooms, right? Like these trees, they just produce the, these beautiful blooms. And you go in there, and of course you have to use all you seven dust because the Japanese beetles, they're going to take them out. But, but you go in there and you prune these things and you cut them back. And when you're finished, they just look like sticks. Just like sticks standing up out of the ground. And it, and it feels like you have just slaughtered the tree. It feels like you have literally just taken these things out and you just sit there and wonder like, I know I just did that wrong. I know I just did that wrong. I just killed every crepe myrtle I have, starting over again, you know. But what happens the next summer? You cut them down in January and by June, there are the most beautiful flowers, even more than you had the year before. But if you think you're going to do the crepe myrtle a favor, and you're going to spare it the pruning. And you, you've got these huge branches that are just draping everywhere. You say, you know what? I know that's got to be hard on the tree. I'm a, I'm a tree rights activist. And I don't want to damage the tree. I don't want to injure the tree. And so I'm not going to prune the tree. Do you know what happens the next year? You think you did it a favor, but in fact it won't bloom. The flowers won't come back. You robbed it of its beauty. You robbed it of its radiance by refusing to prune it. Pruning is painful in the Christian life. The providence of pruning comes into our life and it is the preaching of the word or the reading of the word. It is the, the counsel of a friend. It is the confrontation of your sin. It is the confession of your sin. And it hurts, doesn't it? You hear a sermon or you read a passage or you get the, the words of a wise friend coming into your life and it feels as though you're having surgery done. And you don't want to listen and you don't want to have it and you don't want to hear it because it hurts. But then in retrospect, in retrospect, as painful as it was and as bad as it was and as hard as it was, you look back and now in your life you can see the fruit coming. You can see the blooms radiating the glory of God from your life, which otherwise you were powerless to create. It is the pruning providence of the vine dresser, the Father coming to His branches and trimming them back so that more fruit might come to bear. What about in the circumstances of your life? How often do we read in the scriptures of people ascending in the kingdom of God only to find success after success, good after good? No, that's not what we find at all, is it? In the kingdom of God, what we find is we find hardship produces fruitfulness. Hardship produces fruitfulness. Job had everything, lost everything, so that God could come in, reveal himself to him. And what does Job say? Before my ears had heard, but now my eyes have seen your glory. The pruning providence of God coming to us in poor health, coming to us in a betrayal of a friend, coming to us through a rocky marriage, coming to us through the rebellion of our children, coming to us through the death of someone close to us, coming to us in the loss of a job. It is the pruning providence of God cutting you back for future faithfulness so that you might look back one day and say, what once killed me, what once struck me down, what once cut me to the bone has now grown and blossomed into something beautiful and radiant. 
Brothers and sisters, if God leaves you alone, I don't know that you know God. Like a fine metal in the fire, you will be refined so that you are able to have more joy, more fruit, more glory than before. When Jesus says that his aim is that they might have joy, he doesn't just say any joy though, does he? He says, my joy. That my joy may be in you. And that my joy may be full in you. And brothers and sisters, what we have to recognize this morning is that Jesus' joy does not come by the world's methods. Jesus' joy comes the opposite way the world says. The world says you need to follow your heart and Jesus says that you need to follow the Father's commands. The world says you need to be the king of your own life and your own body and your own decision, but Jesus says that you need to submit to the Father's kingship in every area of your life. Christ's joy will not come to you by following and pursuing the world's ways. Those are shortcuts and they will short-circuit your joy every time. See, the question that God is presenting to us this morning, as branches of the vine, as those who have the purpose of fruit bearing, the fruit of joy, peace, kindness, patience, as the, as the fruit bearers of God, the choice that is before us is do you want a joy that is real or do you want a joy that is rotting and passing away? Do you want a joy that will last or do you want a joy that is fleeting? In 1 John 2, 15-17, it says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now listen to this. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides in do you want joy that lasts? Do you want pleasure that lasts? Do you want peace that lasts? Reject the ways of the world. Reject the joy of the world. Reject the happiness of the world. And find your pleasure in God. And if you find your pleasure in God, your pleasure will be as everlasting as God is. Let's pray together.